Okay, um, it is Song of Songs 5-2 to 6-3, so that is page 683 in the church Bibles. All right, starting with verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Friends, how is your beloved better than others, most, women, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? She. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like the beds of spice-yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Friends, where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn, that we may look for him with you? She, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. I've not met you. I'm also called Johnny, and I'm also one of the pastors at the Gate Church. Um, is this what, yeah, okay. Nice to see you. Um, I'm going to start with a C.S. Lewis quote that I uh, actually finished with two weeks ago. Um, Lewis, Lewis writes this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. See, Lewis is tapping into a, a universally human experience. We, we want to love and be loved. We want to know and be known. And yet to do so, we have to risk um, heartbreak and hurt, to give ourselves fully to someone in marriage or in friendship is to open ourselves up to the possibility of rejection, exposure, or unrequited love. We are, as people, relationally vulnerable. And so we experience this tussle in our hearts, don't we? 
We, we want to move towards intimacy with others, either friendly or romantic or, or marital intimacy. But the deeper we go relationally with someone, the more it will hurt if that person ends up rejecting us or deserting us or mistreating us. And so we, we find it natural, natural to us to protect ourselves, and we do that by, by pulling back from people. So we want to go deeper, but we also pull, pull back as, as we do so. And this dynamic is perhaps um, seen most, it's probably most content, um, intense when people are considering a dating relationship. Someone likes someone else, but they don't know if it's mutual, and so they kind of do this flirty thing, trying to get the measure of the other person's affections, but often you kind of see them kind of keeping another relationship on the back burner just in case this one doesn't work out, just to make sure that our hearts stay intact, that kind of thing. But what's true about dating, what is true for us all in any relationship that means anything to us whatsoever, we fear saying the wrong thing. We measure up whether we love or need the other person more than they love or need us. We, we gather evidence about where we come in a social group's pecking order. We're devastated when it looks as though there's an imbalance in our affections. We're relationally unstable. We are fearful of the hurt that relationships can do to us. And so we take all kinds of measures to protect our hearts, but above all, we will be slow to give ourselves fully to someone within marriage or in friendship for fear that our hearts will be crushed. We, we hold back, which keeps us from enjoying the very thing that we crave, faithfully loving and being loved faithfully. And I, I, looking around, there's a few people here for the first time. Basically, we are, we are in the middle of a sermon series in, in the Bible's book called Song of Songs, this, this gritty book of love poetry between a man and a woman. And it tracks their relationship from dating to uh, engagement through to the wedding day, which we saw last week. And then we pick up the story today uh, when the honeymoon period is over. So they're married now. Honeymoon period's gone. And, and the song thus far has contained poems of undying love and affection for one another. It was almost, in those first weeks, it was almost starting to sound a little bit idealistic until a couple of weeks ago um, uh, when the couple got engaged and, and, and the woman's fear of desertion just bubbled up even more. It was like, now that we've kind of given ourselves to commitment, I almost feel more vulnerable. And what happened is she had this, this nightmare about being rejected. We, we, we saw how she looked forward to her wedding day as that time when the dissatisfaction of the dating relationship and the vulnerabilities experienced at that level of non-commitment at that point, well, it would be replaced by a forever commitment and a security. The relational peace which she was yet to know, which she craved, was not hers yet. So she looked forward to the wedding day. And here we are on the other side of the wedding day. Does that make sense? Just to get you into the... And if, if you, today, if you were here two weeks ago when I preached on, on Song of Songs 3, and you begin to get deja vu, it's not your imagination. In today's passage, post-wedding day, the now husband and wife have this argument, they have this big bust up, and it leads to the wife's relational vulnerabilities bumbling, bubbling over again as she has almost exactly the same nightmare that she had before she got married. Despite the wedding vows, she still feels vulnerable. And the point is clear enough. It's not a mistake that there's these two dreams are side by side with a wedding day in between. The point is clear. 
our relationally vulnerable hearts and dissatisfied souls cannot be made safe or satisfied even in the most intimate of human relationships. We need something beyond. We need something more. And indeed, every single week, and this is really important if you've here for the first, first time this week, we've been clear that while there are ample lessons in the Song of Songs for human relationships, Jesus says that ultimately this book points to him. The book, this collection of poems, finds its fulfillment and destination in him and what he's done for us as the lover of our souls. And so in our passage today, and if you're a note taker, we're going to see this, that Jesus is the faithful one who has given himself fully to us. He has known us and loved us fully so that we in turn can give ourselves fully and fearlessly to him and to others. Our spouse, if we're married, our Christian brothers and sisters, our friends, our family. And the passage comes in, in three sections, um, which we'll kind of walk through chronologically. First, you see the argument, okay, the, the big bust up. Then there's this search as the wife looks for her husband. And, and finally, there's a reconciliation. So the argument, the search, and the reconciliation. So um, let's start with the search. The passage will be on the screen um, if, you're, if you're wondering. Um, so you'll remember back in chapter 3, that the woman described this relational frustration, the lack of stability of not being married. Um, She spoke about it as if it was the dark, in terms of the dark of night. And she kind of contrasted that with, oh, but on my wedding day, the day will break, so light light will flood in. And, and, And until then, she was also described as a locked garden with distance between herself and her lover. But now they're, ma- they're married, you'd assume she'd be singing, oh, the light is here and the distance is gone, right? That, all that kind of stuff is a thing of the past. But look at verse 1 of chapter 5. She says, I slept, nighttime, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, he says, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. So, so do you see the point? That despite getting married, despite entering into this secure forever relationship, relationally speaking, it's still nighttime. She's asleep, but her heart's awake, i.e. she's dreaming. This whole thing's a dream. She's asleep, but she's awake. But, but, but also, they're still apart. She's alone in bed, locked in her room. The picture is still one of relational and emotional distance. They've had this argument, and the man has clearly gone out to clear his head despite the rain, and now he's come back soaking, and he's knocking on the door, um, and and he's speaking gently to her through the door. He's saying, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my, my flawless one. And in her dream, while, while he's been out, she's been getting ready for bed, no doubt, uh, kind of thinking over the argument, both angry at him, but also fearing whether he'll come back or not. There's a degree here of vulnerability. And, and, and now he's back. Well, she feels safer, doesn't she? Indeed, his gentle tone kind of inviting um, her to, to be reconciled, it makes her feel much more secure in his love. You know, after all, he does want to be with her. And that gives her the kind of upper hand in this um, argument. And so in verse 3, the woman doesn't just open the door, 
but responds rather, yeah, she says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? You know, it's that kind of like, you see what she's doing. She's kind of playing hard to get here. I'm not that bothered about you. I'm not that bothered about having you in my bed. It's not really worth me putting on my dressing gown or like dirtying my feet to let you into this door. See, there's that heart tussle. She wants him back, but she wants him to feel that same sense of relational vulnerability that she herself feels in the relationship. She wants to get a little bit on top of this. She wants him to have to grovel a little bit. And he does. And in case you're wondering what's going on here, home, homes at this time would often have like this outer door with like a latch that you could open, um, which was unlocked, and then you'd go on to an inner door, which would normally be lockable. And so verse 4, this man basically opens that outer door. He's standing outside that door, and he, and he, and he opens that latch, and he, so he's standing on the inside just with the locked door in front of, of, um, of himself. And this pursuit of her, her husband's pursuit of her, causes her to desire him. You read that, her heart pounds. The references there to um, myrrh dripping from her hands, verse 5, portray a sexual desire for him. The heart balance has shifted. His, his gentle tone, his, his kind words, his desire for her has provided the safety that she wanted. And so she feels able to get, say, go up and open the door. And yet, verse 6. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. Literally in the original language, my heart died because he was gone. Presumably the man thought, do you know what, she's not coming. I don't want to force whatever she's thinking, but she, it, it, it's over and he's, he's left. And the fearful risk that she has taken to give herself once more to her husband has backfired. She stands in the doorframe, alone and exposed. And her heart just sinks. You see, this wife is experiencing the very same thing we do, whether in marriage or, um, or another intimate friendship. So long as our spouse or friend or family member is human, we will always find ourselves insecure, kind of weighing up the other's response to us, figuring out if, if we're loved, putting our, our best foot forward whilst keeping our worst parts back. And as it was for this couple, isn't this vulnerability so often the cause of arguments A sense of desire not reciprocated, of uncared for fear that we experience, or a sense of shame and rejection bubbles over into a harsh word to the one we're in relationship with. And, and the Apostle James asks this, he, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, he doesn't really ask it, he answers his own question. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within? We desire this person, this spouse, this friend, but they have not honored the risk that we have taken for them. They've hurt us, so we argue. But the irony is that arguing often makes the fear of rejection even greater. Of course, sometimes our anger is justified. The Bible also says, um, be angry and do not sin. 
But so often our arguments are, are unhealthy. We repay sin for sin. We give the silent treatment, for example. We refuse forgiveness when genuinely asked for. We make them grovel or atone for their uh, wrong done against, against us in a way that God never does with us. Friends, this is the reality of even the best human relationship, the most intimate human relationship. For the couple and for us, it is still nighttime. Nothing has changed since the wedding day. There's still distance, there's still conflict, there's still unmet needs. And so that's the, that's the first thing we'll see, the argument. Next up is the search, the search. And this is where things get kind of very similar to two weeks ago. What happens next is, is basically identical to what happened in, their, in her premarital dream that she had. Look at verse 6. She says this, I, I looked for him, but did not find him. So she once again, as we saw last, last time, she once again risks her welfare by going in, at night into the city alone to search for her husband. She's gone from a position where she felt safe in his love, safe to open the door to him, to fear and anxiety because he's left. And, and the questions you can imagine, it's like they're swirling around her head as she's walking the streets. You know, do, does he care for me after all? Why, why did he leave? What if he's gone for good? You know, what, one minute she, she's saying that she's not sure it's worth putting on her nightgown to open the door for him. And the next, it's all she's wearing as she roams the streets of Jerusalem looking for him. And again, in, in chapter 3, as, sorry, again, as like, like in chapter 3, she bumps into the city watchman. No doubt, um, these kind of moral enforcers, a kind of policeman of, of Jerusalem at this time. And verse 7, with her only wearing her nightgown, they probably take her for an illegal prostitute, and they beat her cruelly, bruising her body. And while I certainly cannot in any way address the evil of physical, sexual, or domestic abuse here, I at least want to acknowledge that for some of you, both your desire to be loved fully and the fear you feel in allowing someone to have that hold over you, well, it isn't just some emotional insight, but it's the result of profound evil and abuse done to you. God hates what happened to you, and without sounding trite, he does hold out hope, hope that we will soon go on to see. But before we get there, and in a way that can only happen in a dream, this poor woman suddenly just bumps into her friends. <laughs> They're just there, right? <laughs> you love dreams. They're just all of a sudden in the streets of Jerusalem at night. And the same friends who wished her well last week at her wedding are now chatting to her. And in verse 9, they essentially ask... Kind of like, why are you so desperate to find this man? What's so, what's so great about this husband of yours that you're kind of like, you, you, you're doing this? And just this question tips her over the edge into a monologue of her passionate love for him. So verse 11, her head is, his head is pure as gold. 12, his eyes are like doves. 13, his cheeks are like beds of spice. 14, um, his arms are like rods of gold. And basically, she keeps on going from the head all the way down his body until she finishes. His legs are pillars of marble. So you get the point. 
All of him from head to toe is a delight to her. Verse 16, she's explicit. He is altogether lovely, friends, right? This is my beloved. This is my friend. Isn't it so often that we only realize how precious someone is when we feel that we're losing them? In marriage, sometimes it's possible to slouch on the sofa each night, barely grunting two words to one another, or to argue or mistreat um, one another. But, but should anything happen to them, or you feel like you're losing them for some reason, doesn't their preciousness to you suddenly make you come to your senses? The same happens in friendships or, or family relationships. Often it happens in, in grief, in bereavement. We take our loved ones for granted, and when they're gone, we see how precious they are slash were to us. We, we, we think of all the things we could have done differently if we just had our chance again. You know, just as the woman here has kind of forgotten about the argument with her husband, the way that he made her absolutely fuming, right? So, so often at funerals, for example, we, we kind of rightly only remember the beauty and best bits of the person we've lost. Brothers and sisters, we're called to gratitude, not indifference. Don't only be grateful for your spouse or your friends. Show them you're grateful for them. Tell them you're grateful for them. Remind yourself that you are grateful for them. When was the last time you bought a gift for your friend or surprised your spouse with a simple and unnecessary act of love? When was the last time you told a loved one what they mean to you? It's a cliche, isn't it? But our, our time is short. Don't mess around in cold indifference. Don't mess around in, in historic hostility towards those you deeply love. One day, you might be frantically searching to regain what you've lost. Don't wait until tomorrow to express what is true today. So that's the search. Finally, and more briefly, we see the reconciliation. So she's asked her friends back in um, verse 8 of chapter 5 to help her find her husband. Right, friends, help me, please. And after her passionate outpouring, that she just described his whole altogether loveliness, in, in, in chapter 1 of verse 6, they essentially say, you know, fair enough, this guy sounds like a keeper, right? We'll, 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 we'll help you with this. this uh, he's like no man I've ever met before. Um, and, uh, and, and again, in a similar way to chapter 3, and in a way that could only happen in the dream, what happens? Well, he's there. He's there. Verse 2, she says, well, she all of a sudden knows where he is. My, my, my beloved has gone down into his garden, to the, be, the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather the lilies. Now, if you've been in the series over this time, you'll remember that this garden is a full yet tasteful um, picture, word picture of the woman's sexuality. Right? Her husband is there and they're fully reconciled, united once again in sexual intimacy. Verse 3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. You see, arguments aren't always bad. We've got to be clear, arguments are always a result of living in a fallen world with sinful hearts, but when they are navigated and responded to in godly ways, arguments can lead to a greater awareness of our love for one another, a greater understanding of the person we love, of how to love them through healthy conflict, and importantly, through the reconciliation and forgiveness that it brings. 
Our, our relationships grow and they mature. We grow as people, as friends, as spouses. But here, here's my question as we close. Now that the couple are reconciled, have they finally taken hold of the relational security that the woman was hoping that her wedding day would bring her? Will this relational growth bring an end to their vulnerability and fear? Is this the end of giving the silent treatment, of jostling for position, of fearing rejection, of longing for faithfulness? Well, let me repeat what I've already been pretty clear about. No. Our hope of relational security can never be established on the weak foundation of another human being. No doubt for this couple, their next argument is, well, my marriage is anything to go by only a week away. These are just the first steps in a lifetime of growth. But here is our hope. Relational security can be found only in a reconciled relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Like the whole Old Testament, this passage points to what Jesus has done for and is doing in us. The Bible is is really, really clear. We ourselves are in conflict with God, caused by our own faithlessness to him through our sin. And without his intervention, there is this distance between us. We are alienated. That's the language the Bible uses. We are alienated from him. And by extension, we are alienated from one another and even our own inner selves. And yet, like the husband, God hasn't left us this way. He is knocking on the door of our lives, speaking gently to us, seeking reconciliation. Indeed, um, in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We are his bride. And like the wife in our passage today, so often we are slow to open the door to him, aren't we? We make excuses. It might be because we enjoy sin way too much, but actually it's very possible that we just feel too vulnerable. Opening the door to the God of the universe is about as exposing a relationship as we can imagine. Surely he will know our sins fully. Surely he will end up rejecting me. And so we keep our distance, we keep our doors locked. We don't give him, we don't talk to him about actually what's happening in our lives. We keep him at arm's length. And yet, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Lord God who not only knows you fully already, regardless of you opening the door or not, but he is the one who, despite knowing every depth of your heart, every sin that you cannot shake, every moment of spiritual adultery as you give yourself to other people and other things before him, he is the one who, despite this perfect knowledge, gave himself fully for you without waiting for you to give yourself to him first. Indeed, in his search and desperate desire to be reconciled to you, he didn't only risk being beaten and bruised unjustly like the woman. No, no, he did so willingly, allowing his body to be broken on the cross at the hands of moral enforcers who thought they were dealing with a criminal. Instead, they were carrying out the heart of God to end our cosmic conflict with him to make the first move and be reconciled to those he profoundly loves. 
Listen to how 2 Corinthians 5 describes what is happening when we hear this word of Christ to us through the door of our hearts. It says this, We, that is preachers, are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This very morning, Christ is knocking at the door of your heart and God is appealing to you through him. Come. If it's for the first time, do not delay. Come to the one who is faithful. If it is the umpteenth time, come. Your sins are gone. The lover of your soul is here. Be reconciled. Be united with him through faith. Because for all who do this, just reason for a lot of joy. Not only in him do we find the the end of our restless search for faithfulness, not only do we enjoy relational peace with God Almighty, but also importantly in in our friendships, in our marriages, in our family relationships, we do not have to wait to receive the unconditional love from someone else before we can risk giving our love to them. No, no, we love others because God, says the Apostle John, has first loved us with his unconditional love in Christ. We no longer have to fear giving ourselves fully to our spouse or to our friends or to our brothers and sisters in church. We we can be vulnerable in those relationships because and only because we have a steadfast, immovable, relational rock in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His is the most valuable relationship that we can imagine and it is the only one that we cannot lose. With his forever and faithful love, we're free. We're free to pursue deep and meaningful and intimate relationships with, of course, with those closest to us, but also we're able even to pursue hostile people, knowing that if our love and effort and affection is not reciprocated, even if that person or people hurt us, we can no longer be crushed because God's faithful and enduring love toward us will never leave nor forsake us. Unlike the husband in our passage who was, who was gone skis after, you know, 20 seconds of argument, Jesus Christ was there for you yesterday, he's here for you today, and he will be there for you tomorrow. Be reconciled to him. Open the door. Give your heart to him fully. Tell him your fears. Explain your insecurities. Confess your sins and let his warm embrace and faithful love empower you to go and be sacrificially faithful in all of your relationships. And when we do, we're only reflecting back the love that is already ours in Christ Jesus. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we are vulnerable people, scared and running, restless and arguing, we're angry, we're insecure, we spend our lives weighing up where we stand, how we are doing, whether we are loved, whether we are unloved, how we can find love and affection. Father God, convince our unbelieving hearts of this, that in Christ we have everything we're looking for. I pray for those of us today who have not been reconciled to you through him. I pray that they would give themselves fully to you. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that that our giving of ourselves to you would be more full. 
that we would stop holding things back, stop, stop holding back parts of our lives, stop parting, holding back parts of our emotions and our, our lived experience that would make out as if you don't know that already. It would make out as if you haven't loved us already through that. Father God, allow us to feel the, 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 the joy and the freedom of being yours and you being ours. In his name we pray. Amen.